Hello, I'm Will Hitchcock. And I'm Siva Vadianathan. And from the University of Virginia's Deliberative Media Lab, this is Democracy in Danger. In the 1980s, the multi-ethnic Republic of Yugoslavia was a communist regime. But as Sergei Popovich says, his country was not behind the Soviet Iron Curtain. It had one-party rule with a relatively free and open society. Uh, so yes, in my teens, I was uh, mostly interested in playing guitar in a goth rock band sounding like Sisters of Mercy or Cure. All of that changed in 1989 when strongman and Serbian ultranationalist Slobodan Milosevic came to power. Now, in Germany, the Berlin Wall had recently fallen and reunification was in the air. But the Yugoslav Confederacy had already been crumbling. The economy was in tatters. Independence movements arose across member states. And Milosevic was going genocidal to stop them. And immediately your world turns upside down. From normal, you know, middle-class life, you turn into the place where your father sells petrol on the street to survive. From the brotherhood and fraternity of all the Slavic nations, you end up by being mobilized and drafted for war in Croatia and Bosnia and given a gun to shoot somebody because that person is a Croat or Bosnian, which is a kind of very bizarre because you grew up in the country with all these nations. And this like, you know, somebody from Virginia being sent to war against somebody in New Mexico and told that the New Mexicans are evil. Like many Serbs who oppose the regime, Popovic had to make an incredibly hard choice. Do you flee your homeland or stay and resist? And if you stay and resist, how? How do you oppose military might with rock and roll and 10 friends from college? We decided to take the destiny into our own hands and build a movement called Resistance. Uh, it may sound crazy, 11 students deciding to take on the dictator, but no, I'm not an extraordinary brave person. The whole of my generation became activists by incident. So the situation creates the hero. When you don't have other choice, you find the strength in you to fight for the things you believe in. The only way to fight, Popovich says, was not to fight. The resistance, or otpor in Serbian, adopted nonviolence as a guiding principle. They held mass rallies and concerts, staged street plays lampooning the corrupt government, and they worked behind the scenes to get security forces to defect. The approach was as much practical as it was moral. Common sense teaches you that uh, you will engage with your opponent on the battlefield of your strength and his weakness. In other words, if you, if you need to face a person like Mike Tyson, the last place you're going to choose as a battlefield is a boxing ring, because the guy will obviously eat your ears and then he will eat you. Eventually, Otpor did help topple Milosevic. The movement grew to more than 70,000 people, and they succeeded where international pressure and even the NATO bombings in 1999 did not. Milosevic resigned in 2000 amid intensifying demonstrations, and six years later, he died in a prison cell in The Hague while on trial for war crimes. Sergei Popovich went on to found an organization called Canvas. Canvas teaches activists around the world how to speak truth to power and how to win by bringing people together. Let's try to, to make a mental experiment and make a guerrilla movement. You will need the people who are 
strong, healthy, had some military training, ready to camp in the woods during the, the time of a polar vortex. And then, of course, ready to kill and die for what they believe in. That's very, very small percentage of your phone book. The more people participate in the movement, the more diverse people participate in the movement across the gender, across the age, across, you know, physical health and things of that kind. The more you're capable to build in different constituencies, the more you're likely to succeed. Well, if you've been following our show this season, you know we've been looking beyond the United States more and more, and we've been asking what ordinary people can do to fix ailing democracies and strengthen them, which is why we reached out to Popovich to talk to him about his own activism and what it says about progressive movements today. We asked him beyond his personal experience in Serbia if there were any other cases of nonviolent resistance that really epitomize what he teaches activist leaders? Well, I mean, we do a lot of case studies, especially when you teach in schools, and uh, it's not like there is one case. The thing is, every single nonviolent struggle is different. The contexts are different. The enemies are different. The actors are different. Uh, religious, cultural, economic, uh, demographic backgrounds are different. So rather than taking on one case, what we spent last 15 years or so looking at are the principles that connect successful movement. And we cut this in what we call the holy trinity of success in nonviolent struggle. Successful movements have vision and are able to achieve unity around this vision. So they know what they want and they know how to create a team to get there. Second, uh, movements require planning. There are only two types of social change movements in this world. They are either spontaneous or successful. So you need to plan your grand strategy, you need to plan your campaign, you need to plan your tactics, and this is where planning comes in place. And last, successful movement carry on with phenomenon we call nonviolent discipline. They're capable to preach on violence, they're capable to teach on violence, they're also capable to select tactics which are less likely to end up being violent. And once again, if you want to organize a march of angry people facing the police, there are relatively big chances that there will be a violence outbreak from either of the sides, as opposed to if you organize a large boycott of the largest military-owned Burmese bank and you make people pull their money off their ATMs, you will make your opponent a serious financial damage. And the possibility for violence is low. I mean, the people won't break ATMs. They won't start beating each other in a queues to get to the ATMs. And it's very difficult for police to suppress this as well, because what they will do, defend ATMs with their own bodies. So principles of successful nonviolent struggle are unity and vision, planning and nonviolent discipline. Successful movements share those three. Also, when you take a look at the movements which failed, they normally failed in one or two of these principles. Well, you know, we're we're all about failure here on Democracy in Danger. We we more often than not talk about failures and frustrations and fears. So it's it's really lovely to to think about what it takes to succeed. But I'm hoping you could reflect a bit on failure and frustration. I mean, when we look around the world right now at Belarus, at Russia, at Hong Kong, you know, despite the faces of the people in the streets who are trying to make a stand for a better tomorrow. You know, the power of the state in all of these cases seems just so overwhelming. Uh, and the, the prospect for 
Any serious change, let alone revolution, in the short term seems out of the question. Uh, you know, what constitutes failure? What can you learn from failure? How do you know when a movement has lost? You know, failure is a defeat only if you don't learn something from it. And we tried it in 992. We did our little bit of Occupy type of thing. We organized an anti-war movement. Uh, we were singing, all we are saying is give peace a chance in university campuses with all the cool actors and musicians and boo boo boo. Uh, while Milosevic was sending his thanks to Croatia. Uh, obviously, we failed in mobilizing his constituency, more rural people. 96, 97, he stole the elections. We recognized the opportunity. We protested for 100 days, day after day after day, in 32 different cities. Uh, we succeeded. We made him recognize uh, the elections and uh, also failed in, because the opposition felt part within a month after that. So we failed in unity. 98, we took a different approach. We started with strategy first instead of doing stuff and making strategy as it goes. Yeah. So you learn from your failures, you learn from other people's failures. And taking a look at this, uh, uh, you can generalize this uh, to all of the nonviolent movements. First of all, the fact that the campaign failed doesn't mean the movement failed. So movements fail in three different phases. Movements fail in initial phase if they are not capable to mobilize numbers, build up the science strategy, and develop the elements of movement identity. Then the second stage you look at is called engagement phase. This is where movements have number and tactics and things of that kind. This is where they mostly fail if the unity fails, uh, if the oppression crushes them or they didn't figure out how to deal with the oppression. And uh, last but not the least importance and actually of the most importance, you see this growth in numbers and it looks like a stairs for a long time. So you do a small thing. You recruit more people. Small thing, you recruit more people. And then there is a big event. Uh, elections are stolen. Uh, military rolls down the election results in Burma. George Floyd is brutally murdered, where you have your numbers grow exponentially. This is the moment for which movements need to be prepared. This is what we call the victory point. If you take a look at the studies, five years after the change, there is only 42% of the cases where this change is there. So you actually have more chance to screw it up in the victory phase. Sounds bizarre, but this is the statistics. Why so? It is because most of the movements plan to oust Mubarak. Most of the movements plan to oust the corrupt mayor. Most of the movements uh, plan to, you know, defund the police. So this is just the tactical victory as opposed to the systemic victory that you need to be focused on. And the truth is, once you achieve this climax of tactical victory, uh, you know, Milosevic steps down, the oppressive law is overturned, corrupt person steps down, you have a deflation in numbers because the people are more easier mobilized if there is a visible enemy. So normally you get to the point of your victory, it's very difficult to push it through the transition. And I, of course, experienced it on my own skin after the, the Serbian revolution. I went to the government and to the parliament for three years, trying to reform the beast from the inside. And I must tell you that these were not the three uh, most uh, successful or most thrilling years of my life. Actually building independent institutions or, you know, transparent laws on public buying is far less sexy and attractive than not turning the police in the streets. And only some people are ready to do this. So the most difficult phase is once Mubarak is down, how you push it through the transition.
You mentioned George Floyd, and I wanted to just ask, uh, in the summer of 2020, we saw an astonishing mobilization of Americans, and in fact, a mobilization around the world against systemic racism and police brutality. What, what did you, how did you read the Black Lives Matter movement as an analyst, as an experienced veteran? How did you critique it? What did you think was the source of its success? And let me ask you this, has it succeeded? Or are we just at the beginning? What phase is the Black Lives Matter movement at now, in your judgment? Well, first of all, uh, a week ago, a friend of mine and an iconic pop artist, uh, Peter Gabriel, uh, re-released his song, Biko, uh, some 40 years after it was made against the apartheid movement in South Africa. He spent his life in activism, and he still goes on, and we had a, a recent dialogue about this, and I mean, this is exactly what it tells you. 40 years ago, you defeated apartheid in South Africa. Four decades after that, you are fighting against the systemic racism. This is a beast that dies tough. And once again, some of these struggles are marathon. Things like, you know, uh, racial inequality, things like uh, gender inequality, things like climate change require a lot of work by global movements. So the fact that you defeated the enemy at one spot doesn't necessarily mean that it wouldn't appear it ugly head somewhere else. And it's definitely the case with the systemic racism. So speaking about this, uh, you can take a look at, uh, at the good side of it and the bad side of it, if you want, strategically. Good side of it, uh, it's widespread. It caught fire with the people who were previously not involved in the politics, even in a very conservative place. I live in Colorado Springs, which is uh, kind of the most conservative part of the blue state of Colorado. You walk through the neighborhoods, you see BLM signs and bumper stickers everywhere. So it, it definitely caught a lot of attention and brought in a lot of numbers. When you're addressing the phenomenon and the systemic racism is a phenomenon, it's a multi-pillar struggle. So obviously, most of the focus is on a police and, and law enforcement uh, treatment of people of color. And this is very important, but it's just the symptom. Obviously, police doesn't act alone. It is something that you need to address on several different levels. You want to look at the cause of it. It's social inequality. So it needs to be addressed in the education. It is economic inequality, which is why we need equal pay for equal work for people of color. So now there is this big opportunity, for example, to address business pillar. The businesses in U.S. are crazy about making them more diverse, more equal. So, you know, taking on this pillar would be knocking at the open door. So strategically, to plan this struggle, I will expand it from just the police and the monuments in parks. Yes, they spark the most of the mobilization. Yes, colonial history and slavery history pisses people off. I understand all of this. But taking a look at the long-term victory, there must be a systemic change in multiple pillars and, and law enforcement. It is important, but it's curing the symptom. We need to cure the disease, and curing the disease requires more strategic approach. Sergey, you mentioned Peter Gabriel earlier, and you mentioned his own activism, but also his song Biko. And I, I was taken back to my my younger days as a young man, a student at the University of Texas, becoming aware of and then involved in the campaign to divest university uh, monies from businesses that do work in South Africa. And part of that 
for me, part of the increased awareness and motivation was music, listening to Peter Gabriel, listening to the specials, listening to ultimately South African artists themselves. Uh, and you yourself were a musician, right? And, and so I'm wondering about your thoughts about the role of the arts, especially music, in inspiring, in educating, in motivating, in solidifying these movements. How much does it matter that we move our feet? Or as George Clinton said, free your mind and your ass will follow. Uh, you touched so much of this. First of all, when I saw the Serbian super band, Yugoslav super band, Rim Tutituki, playing on the truck, that was the moment where I had my revelation about activism and understanding that activism is not the thing for old ladies fighting for dogs' rights, but this is something that can be cool and bring my generation ill. That was a small anti-war protest in Belgrade when I was 19. Uh, so the music and art plays a role in this. The part of our curriculum is the phenomenon we call artivism. So you can see all alleys of art working on. You take a look at the Myanmar now, you have a graffiti which said, fuck cool, in the middle of the main highway, like they painted <laughs> literally the highway. You want to move to the, to the BLM Plaza in Washington, D.C. And one of my, my inspiration in BLM is called Andre Henry. He's a hip hop musician. Afro-American, Jamaican, amazingly inspirational person. He communicates through song and individual artistic events. So you cannot underestimate the role of art in this struggle. You want to take a look at oppressive countries. You want to take a look at the Voina in Russia or the Free Theater in Belarus. So, you know, artists are on the cutting edge of inspiring and mobilizing people to do stuff. Speaking of Peter Gabriel, once again, Biko video is out. Watch it. Donate to the cause. Uh, again, after 40 years, it's it's there to unite artists and give a boost to the deprived communities. Uh, but speaking, speaking of this uh, wider phenomenon, you mentioned something re which is really interesting, which was divestment of universities from racism government in South Africa. This is a phenomenon that movements are applying more and more. It's called expanding the battlefield. It is one thing to oppose the brutal military junta in place like Sudan or in place like Myanmar. It is completely different thing to mobilize the international solidarity campaign, which puts the pressure on the tentacles of businesses, of Burmese and Sudanese generals, which are everywhere. Don't be lured. This is not ideological thing. This is not military thing. This is kleptocracy. These people are shamelessly rich. And they have international businesses. So what happens in Burma now is you take a look at the street protest. The more brutal the opponent in the country, the more you avoid mass gatherings and protests because people will get killed. You distract and dislocate. You engage them wherever you are. So you want to help things in Burma? Take a look at the companies in Virginia, which are making their cheap apparel in Burma. And then take a look at who owns this factory in Burma. And I can put $50 bet that this is somebody affiliated with the military regime. So you want to help people of Burma? Stop buying from this company and write an angry email to the company saying you are, by maintaining this business in Burma, you are effectively undermining human rights. Will is invented. We just need to apply it effectively. Serge, I have to, I have to ask you, uh, you have talked a lot, very um, powerfully about structures. 
uh, follow the money, long-term structural racism, the ways in which, you know, tactics to go after the pillars, the institutions. And I think that's exactly right. But the reality is in the United States, we've just gone through four years of Donald Trump and Trumpism. And it's going to take us a little while to get over the impact of this one individual on our thinking. I'd be curious to know if you think, in a sense, was Trump good or bad for American democracy? You know, a lot of people sort of suddenly were reminded, oh my goodness, millions of Americans seem perfectly comfortable with anti-democratic behavior. They would be happy to have a strong man in, in charge forever. On the other hand, millions of people seem to have woken up to the fragility of democracy. Uh, I mean, I know you like to think structurally, but individuals can radicalize and mobilize and polarize societies, as, and that happened in America in these last few years. How do you read the Trump era? Oof, it's a, it's a million-dollar question, and I'm not sure if I'm a, I'm a best person to answer it. Uh, when speaking of American presidents, I like to quote American presidents. Uh, that makes me sound smart. Speaking about American presidents coming from the Republican Party, I will quote, uh, well, not my favorite American president, I must admit, but it's a very clever quote. It was Ronald Reagan who said that democracy is always one generation far from extinction. And he told this in the era of, of, of the Cold War. Remember, no internet, no Facebook, no Twitter. So this generation, meaning 50 years, probably shrinks to 10 years. And of course, it, it reminds people to the fact that only because you have democratic institutions, you are not safe from this. And then let's expand. You always look at the numbers. Democracy is on the backslash. Whether you are looking at the Freedom House Freedom Index, you can look at the last 15 years, more countries are becoming more authoritarian than more open. You want to take a look at how it impacts economy. You want to take a look at uh, another very interesting index called Legatum Institute, a prosperity index. The more countries are closing down and getting more authoritarian, the more people are becoming less prosperous and blah, blah, blah. Why so? It's not because the Putins of this world are capable to contain things at home. It's not because Lukashenko's of this world becoming more brutal. It is because you have more and more Dutertes of Philippines in this world. You have more and more Bolsonaros of this world in Brazil. What do you mean by that? Do, do you mean, is it corrupt? That means democratically elected leaders, which clamp on democracy from above. So this is not dictators expanding their model. Okay, Putin is. It's a different game. The Russia is is big player in promoting this post-truth world. This is a different topic. But it is because the if you take a look at the Freedom House, take a look at the countries where this decaying democracy is coming, it's coming from Hungary. It's coming from Turkey. The countries which were looking at democracy progress in the last 10 years and are now backlashing. So for effective democracy, it is not enough to have democratic institutions, free and fair elections. You need people to participate. No free and fair elections will hold if people don't participate in it. No institution will be democratic long enough if people don't keep it accountable. People in power are like underwear. You need to change them or they become smelly. I know that I was a politician. So it's a very long answer to your question about President Trump and his assault on democracy. In many ways, it was harmful for American image. In many ways, these polarizations are radicalized and are there to stay. The plague of post-truth and conspiracy theory, which will spill out into anti-masking and anti-vaxxing and actually endanger the public health of the people, or worse, 
is there and it is a very bad thing. In our way, American democracy show its resilience. And the reason why we are here, looking into the more brighter future, at least democracy-wise in the United States, is because of the level of the participation in the elections and the mobilization of the people in different roles prior to these elections. But don't forget this and then go home and just expect that the new guys will rule better only because they are new. Well, Sergio, as we look around the the world in 2020, we saw, of course, that people around the world, activists, writers, thinkers, uh, were all very invested in how we handled our democracy here in the United States. But, you know, Americans are often myopic and we, we don't always look beyond our own situation. I, I mean, I consider myself quite fortunate that in my early 20s, I looked at my television and I saw people my age link arms and face down soldiers in Soweto. I saw people my age scale the Berlin Wall. I saw people my age stand in front of tanks in Tiananmen Square. Oh man, you're old. And I felt, well, certainly, but I've, I'm inspired, <laughs> right? And I remain inspired by those images. Those, you know, a, a friend of mine uh, called me a 1989 Democrat, and I certainly am with, you know, with a small d. So I, I sense uh, that I was given the gift of a cosmopolitan sensibility by being that age at that time and seeing people with whom I shared some common fate around the world taking risks that I thought I would never have to take. Now, of course, I live in Charlottesville, Virginia, and we found ourselves in perilous situations we couldn't have predicted. But what do you tell young Americans to help them invest themselves in solidarity with the people of Myanmar, with the people of India, with the people of Brazil? How can we get Americans to care more deeply about people around the world? Uh, it's once again, multi-layer question. It's a global political question. I think there are three, three things to look at it. One, restore the position of America as a beacon of democracy. So restoring democracy in America has impact on people in Burma. There is somebody to lead. So this is one way to look at it is bolstering democracy in America. It's not only helping America, it's also helping others to figure out, yeah, this is how we want to do it. And there is somebody standing out there uh, for our aims and goals and is ready to be engaged. It's not an island. The world is interconnected. Uh, dictatorships are bad for businesses everywhere. So this is the global world. Step number two, take a look at the generation. That means like uh, you are you are whining about your student days as I'm whining about my <laughs> student days. And then Will will jump in and say, you know, at the time of the Pierre Gabriel music really matters. And I, I can't agree with you more. I mean, I, I'm this old fart uh, claiming that the last good songs were made at the beginning of the, of the 21st century. And now we have this 14 seconds production pattern, which is unlistenable. But take a look at the generation. There is hope. I will just point your attention to two ongoing global movements. Fridays for Future. This is where the young people are getting out of school. And I've seen them getting out of high school in Charlottesville when I was there for a presidential idea conference a few years ago. These are the teenagers. This is the generation to believe in. All across the globe, these people stand against the climate change. They tend to be more engaged into environmental struggle than the people from your and mine generation. Remember, getting engaged in a social cause makes you more likely to get engaged in other social causes. So there is no lack of awareness. 
especially when it comes to the climate change. Another thing, Americans are, are now, now, now this will be very politically incorrect. I warn you, people make this stereotype about the Americans. And if I was given a dollar every time when people ask me, where are you from? And I say from Serbia. And then they say, oh, Siberia must be very cold there. I say, no, no, in fact, it's quite warm and it's, it's South Europe close to Italy. But uh, yes, you, you guys spend a lot of time looking into your own belly, but you need to look more carefully because there are so many great things in this belly. And recently we had this amazing movement sparked from a massacre in Parkland, Florida. Guess what? It was run by teenagers. So this is the case study of strategic approach, taking on gun control, which can be used on any other means. It's exactly what you said. Look at this. After the years and years and years of school shooting, unfortunately, and then you had uh, public protests and they have Democrats coming out. We need more gun control. And then you have a, a 80 year old Republican chairing a Senate committee say, no, 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 we need to arm the teachers that will make schools safe. And then he dies. It's the same pattern all over again, all over again. I've seen this everywhere. So what happens now is that a group of teenagers after shooting in Florida decided to took the path of civil rights movement instead of engaging with pillars of power and especially legislative branch, Congress and Senate and governor. Obviously, these people were, well, at least the students considered them to be in the pocket of the source of this phenomenon, which is well known as NR. A National Rifle Association. So instead of them getting on the street where they are powerless because they can't vote, they took a look at where they have power. And they have power in Amazon and in Dick Sporting Goods and in Walmarts because these companies want their money. So instead of targeting just a senators and congressmen, which need to decide between the bulk of inspiring young people, and a thick fat check, which is coming from NRA regularly for their campaigns, they decided something else. They start targeting companies. So Delta divested from NRA and then United divested from NRA and then five or six car companies uh, that are giving the discounts to NRA members divested from NRA. And then the Walmart was faced with a boycott if they don't bring background checks and the big supporting goods pulled out to like, I love outdoors, I'm fisherman, I'm fanatically following these chains. This chain account for more than 50% of sold arms. So instead of getting to where they can't pass, they strategically targeted the companies. Results, you have more background checks, you have more rigid policies in the companies, and, you know, overshaded by the news about who won elections and storming at the Capitol, NRA filed for bankruptcy. And this victory was achieved by teenagers from Florida. So looking at this generation, there is no lack of strategy, no lack of passion, no lack of results. It is how you interpret it. Why, why, Why I hate the mainstream media in US is because they are not paying enough attention on it. And they are playing it on this 72 hour media cycle without really following up on these stories. But this is the story of inspiration. This is a story of success. And, you know, highlighting this story and putting it on the wider stage will really help. Not only encourage more young people to get involved in, in socially important issues, but also learning how to win from their peers. It was a genuine victory of young generations. So, yes, we may be right. The music was better in 90s. 
but we shouldn't be very desperate and exclusive saying it was our generation very invested in ABC. There is a generation which is ready to be invested in taking on the better world and we need to find a way to help them and educate them. That was Sergei Popovich. He's a guest lecturer at the University of Colorado Boulder and the executive director of Canvas, the Center for Applied Nonviolent Action and Strategies, based in Belgrade. He's also the author of Blueprint for Revolution, How to Use Rice Pudding, Lego Men, and Other Nonviolent Techniques to Galvanize Communities, Overthrow Dictators, or Simply Change the World. Sergei Popovich was nominated in 2012 for the Nobel Peace Prize, and just last week he received the 2020 Brown Democracy Medal from Penn State University's McCourtney Institute. That's the umbrella organization for our podcast network, by the way, the Democracy Group. Visit democracygroup.org to find all of our sister shows. We will be right back. Well, Siva, Sergei Popovich says the media is responsible for not giving enough attention to the stories of young people organizing, protesting, making changes. I'm not sure that he's completely right, but what do you think? Do you think we don't have enough room in our political discourse to recognize that there is another generation of remarkable courage and ingenuity? And the Black Lives Matter movement is a really good example of it. I would say that the media covered it extensively, but coverage of these things can sometimes become quickly kind of cartoonish and constrained. Yeah, I've been spending a lot of time this year looking back at how we talked about the uprisings in North Africa and the Middle East 10 years ago. And I I noticed a lot of what Sergey is pointing out. There was so much attention paid to the flash, to the new, to the technological. There was no real appreciation of more than a decade of hard preparatory work done by activists in Egypt, in Tunisia, even in Syria and Libya, people who had worked with labor organizations, even soccer fans, uh, religious groups, all of whom had been organized discreetly in many cases outside of the eyes of the state, but organized in a way that prepared them to be unleashed when one of those flashpoint moments arose, as Sergey pointed out, right? So just like George Floyd's assassination, we had a similar set of events in Egypt and in Tunisia in late 2010, early 2011. And when that happens, you can harness all of that hard work and significantly expand your movement and make a difference. But of course, the larger analysis that we see through our television sets or through our social media feeds only pays attention to, hey, look what Facebook did, right? right look what Twitter right. did. No, it was people putting their bodies on the line and doing so after doing hard, risky work for more than a decade. Well, and and you're you're absolutely right about the long game. And even in Serbia, you know, it was a decade right. uh, between the collapse of the Yugoslav Federation and the toppling of Milosevic, and 200,000 people were killed in that civil war. An absolutely brutal regime was finally toppled. It took a great deal of effort and struggle, incredible sacrifice and vision, and a lot of very, very dangerous action of putting people in front of tanks 
to gradually pry Milosevic out of power and change Serbia and the Balkans uh, for the good. Absolutely. And, you know, if you listen back to season one of Democracy in Danger, you can hear us talk to a series of experts who connect Black Lives Matter and the protests that occurred in the summer of 2020 to anti-lynching movements, right, to reconstruction efforts, uh, all the way through, you know, efforts to uh, protest the, the Rodney King beating in the early 1990s, or support for Jesse Jackson's political campaigns uh, in the late 80s, right? These things are all of a piece, and they all speak to what has been going on more than 200 years of struggle for some sort of racial equality and justice in this country. That does it for this week's show. Next time, University of Virginia law professor Danielle Citron will join Will for a special conversation hosted by the Jefferson Scholars Foundation. It will be all about democracy and the law in our digital age. I start reading and hearing about women who are being targeted online on message boards with rape threats, death threats, nude photos, terrifying, reputation-destroying, autonomy-denying attacks. Have you been involved in nonviolent protests? Did they work? We really want to hear your stories. Tweet at DND Podcast, that's D-I-N-D Podcast, or leave a comment on our website, dindanger.org. We have lots of extras for you there. Notes on the show, things to read, and a preview of what's coming up. And while you're at it, please subscribe to this show on any audio app. Share our episodes with your family, your friends, and uh, even your enemies. Democracy in Danger is produced by Robert Armengol with help from Jennifer Ludovici. Our interns are Denzel Mitchell and Jane Frankel. Support comes from the University of Virginia's Democracy Initiative and from the College of Arts and Sciences. This show is a project of UVA's Deliberative Media Lab. We're distributed by the Virginia Audio Collective and WTJU Radio in Charlottesville. I'm Siva Vadianathan. And I'm Will Hitchcock. We'll see you next time.